The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, this morning, friends, I'm going to continue with a three-part series that I'm doing when I'm at this group on um, the roots of well-being, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And as I mentioned last time, early Buddhism defines a lot of things through negation, via negativa. And that has a certain kind of power because it opens up a whole landscape, a whole realm of what can be included in, for example, this teaching, non-hatred. A lot of people think of non-hatred as being metta, loving kindness. And it is, and it can include a whole lot more. I'll talk about that more in a minute. As I mentioned last time, greed, hatred, and delusion are considered the roots of all mental and emotional suffering in early Buddhism, internally and externally. And they're unfortunately huge motivating factors for a lot of human behavior, either in very broad, strong, obvious way, or in very, very subtle ways. Greed could be the subtlest weaning in. Hatred could be the subtlest dislike on this continuum. The nice thing about this, however, is their opposites can be powerful motivating forces in our minds and hearts too. So non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion can be these roots, these foundations, these almost primal motivators for our lives, for our actions, for our thoughts. And they're known in my own teaching, I call them roots of well-being, this non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, because in of themselves, they generate a sense of well-being And they're also supportive conditions for each other, as well as for other forms of flourishing in life. And the last thing I'll touch on, this is a little bit of a review from last time, is that the total absence of greed, hatred, and delusion is synonymous with total awakening, nibbana, nirvana itself. So these are not trivial qualities. They're very important absences. And I know I'm not there, this heart and mind, except for maybe just little tiny moments, special states, openings. Each of us can learn and nourish our heart's life practice with even the tiniest glimpses. So these talks are an invitation to start noticing those glimpses in yourself. Be nourished by them. So as I mentioned today, the focus is on non-hatred. And you may already be very clear that a lot of experience arises without even subtle forms of hatred or dislike. So I'm going to start with a bit of a word cloud of some of these mind states, heart states. And the invitation is to sit back and just feel into how it feels to hear them. 
these terms and notice how they land for you. Some might resonate more than others, right? Mindfulness. Awareness. Open interest. Loving curiosity. Appreciation. Respect. Compassion. Allowing. Accepting. Letting be. Non-grasping. Welcoming. Lack of a need to control. Care. Altruistic joy. Gratitude. Generosity. Non-entanglement. Equanimity. Freedom. Being peaceful, peaceable. Friendliness. Love and kindness. Metta. So that's the word cloud. And those last three, the quality of being peaceable, friendliness, loving kindness, or metta, those are most closely associated in the ancient language of Pali and the Pali Canon, the old, um, very ancient compendium of the earliest teachings. Those are most closely associated with non-hatred. So I'll talk about them, and then maybe we can have a group conversation at the end a little bit more, unpack some of these others. So the first two, being peaceable and friendliness can coexist quite easily, right? And to um, illustrate this, there's a story, and I'm going to recite it from memory. Um, it's a story by a man named Terry Dobson, who studied extensively in Japan the art of Aikido before it was well known, before it was known at all, really, in this country. And 
he spent years and years studying with this master in Japan and ended up importing Aikido here into this country as a Westerner. I'm sure that there were already Japanese Americans practicing it, but he was the one who imported it to mainstream culture. And he tells a story about his time in Japan as a young man. And he had been studying already for a number of years. And what his master kept telling him is, Aikido is the art of peace. You're not supposed to use this to fight. It's an attitude. It's a way of being. And he was, I don't know, in his 20s, right? So even though he was trying to be very respectful and very contained, there was a part of him he acknowledged that was just looking for the perfect excuse for a fight. And so he's riding home on a Japanese train one day and the train's moving through the countryside and everyone's kind of chill when this big rough man gets on a stop and he's loud and he's drunk and he's mean. And he starts intimidating the other passengers, like kicks at an old woman and yells at another lady with her baby. And people are kind of scuttling away from him. And he's rageful and out of control. And Terry's standing there with his hand on the strap, looking over at him, thinking, this is it. This is my chance. And so he provokes the guy. He like calls him, calls to him, blows him a kiss, and just enrages him. And this big drunk man whirls on him and is about to come over and start a big scuffle on this train. And at the moment he begins to step towards Terry, there's this ear splitting, hi, how are you doing? Aimed at the drunk man. Well, both of them whirl around to look and see who did this. And it's this little tiny old Japanese man sitting, completely ignoring Terry, staring up at the drunk man with a big grin and a twinkle in his eye. He goes, what you been drinking? And there was just something about the friendliness that the drunk couldn't maintain anger. He's like, sake, but it's none of your business. Oh, I like sake. And the little old man just starts chatting him up. And the next thing you know, they're in conversation. The drunk is sitting next to a little old man explaining how he's angry and despairing because his wife just died. And he's drunk from the grief and he lost his job. And Terry is just standing there looking down. And as he has to get off at his stop, this formerly fierce, angry man is got his head in the little old man's lap, sobbing while the old man is stroking his hair. And he said, as he got off the train, he felt really small, really kind of not so great about how he had shown up. And he realized that he'd seen a master of Aikido and that the essence of Aikido was not fighting, but that it was love. I just think this is a beautiful story. And it merges that peacefulness, that friendliness, that lovingness, and of being unafraid to meet even something fierce 
or fear fear inducing with a different kind of response. Now, this is an interpersonal level of non-hatred, clearly, right? However, you know, I don't know who this little Japanese man was, but I suspect he had done some serious meditative work in some tradition in order to be able to meet that level of emotional energy and intensity with friendliness, genuine peacefulness, and lack of fear. So that interpersonal level is supported deeply by cultivating an inner peacefulness, an inner friendliness with one's own experience of these emotions that builds the capacity to meet the same kind of intensity in others. Peacefulness in the practice. This is a quote from the Samyutta Nikaya. Someone is asking the Buddha why his monastics have only one meal a day, they dress in ragged robes, live in forests for the most part, or maybe very humble accommodations offered, and asking, why are they so calm? Why are their faces so radiant? And the Buddha responds, they do not sorrow over the past, nor do they yearn for the future. They live in the present. That is why their faces are calm and radiant. So that is a, just a little touching on the means of how that elder may have begun to touch into something so different than hatred. The present is sufficient in the practice, in the heart of the practice, in the sitting. Of course, we need to plan or remember or be present for all different kinds of things in daily life. That's the benefit of sitting meditation, right? It's a chance to practice what it's like to meet what arises with the present, with friendliness, with non-contention, non-hatred. And that can be very powerful. This acknowledging, allowing, accepting the moment. Equanimity is another word for friendliness with all that arises. Another way of seeing it. It's not that we have to like or I have to like when irritation comes up or when pettiness comes up or when pain comes up. However, there can be a field of allowing that has implicit in it a sense of friendliness, of greeting, of allowing and being with non-contention. The means help to bring about the ends. And speaking of means, I'm going to grab a book to read a poem to you. This is a poem entitled Bhadra, or the enlightened nun that spoke it 
She writes, she said, you always considered yourself lucky when things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now, luck has a different meaning. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment. Regardless of how things work out or don't. Regardless of how things work out or don't. Non-contention with what arises. This can be a powerful expression of non-hatred as well as non-contention. In this current time with so much war raging, there was a, a memory arose of a monk named Maha Gosananda. I've spoken about him in this group before. He is sometimes called the Cambodian Gandhi. He was this wonderful monk who had happened to leave his home of Cambodia to practice intensively in Thailand for many years in a monastery. He practiced very deeply. And while he was gone, the Khmer Rouge rose to power and killed many, many, many people, including many monastics. And as they fell, he returned to Cambodia to begin the healing. And he was, in part because so many people had died, the senior most monk in the order remaining of Cambodian origin. And so he went from refugee camp to refugee camp and passed out flyers and would set up these temporary temples and lead the people in a kind of healing process, which included a chant coming from the Dhammapada. Hatred never ends by hatred, but by non-hate alone does it end. This is the ancient and natural law. Hatred never ends by hatred, but by non-hate alone does it end. This is the ancient and natural law. And his capacity to show up completely with this message and this non-contention and this loving presence began a long, long healing process for these people. To me, this points how a love of healing itself, a love of people, can be a powerful, powerful motivation for forgiveness and for reconciliation. It's not a panacea, I wish it were. However, it is the beginning of an opening to something else. And of course, most of us are not Buddhist saints, are not monks of profound understanding able to walk into a war-torn country and motivate masses of people to their healing. 
However, in our own small ways, we can begin to turn towards our own unresolved, the relationships in our lives, and begin to infuse at least a loving understanding within, even if there's no difference in our own external rapport building or reconnection. And this isn't an invitation to be a doormat or an instruction to be a doormat. A very different story in India. Many of you have heard me tell this before. Sharon Salzberg was in her youth. I believe she was in her 20s. She may have even been a touch younger and studying with a great teacher, Munindraji. And she was staying in Delhi, and she would take a rickshaw to his teachings, to him, to check in with him. And there was one day, if you've never been to New Delhi, it is crazy crowded, and the traffic is kind of epic. So the rickshaw driver was cutting through a um, back alley or a narrower road than these absolutely jam-packed big roads. And as he was, and Sharon's on there, a man accosts them, jumps on the rickshaw, and tries to rip Sharon's purse out of her hands. And together, she and the rickshaw driver are able to kind of get him off, get him away, and finish the trip to see Munindra. But when she got there, she was very shaken. And she'd been studying metta, loving kindness with him, practicing that with him. And in this shaken state, she just looked at Manindra and said, what should I have done? What do I do in a situation like that? And Manindra turns his loving gaze on her and he says very tenderly, my dear, with all the loving kindness in your heart, you hit him over the head with your umbrella. There are times when there needs to be a strong response, but can it come? And it come without hatred. The action might be the same. The motivation can be quite different. So, non-hatred, love, kindness, friendliness, compassion. This quality can be very, very broad, and it can involve powerful motivation. It's the aspiration of every great spiritual tradition that I'm familiar with. It cuts across all of them. And it's the aspiration of serious entry into the Buddhist path, the Dharmic path. There's a quote, I'm going to just paraphrase it because I didn't think to pull it up, of when a layperson either decides to take robes or enter in on very serious path of practice with the Buddha back in the Buddha's time. And it goes something like this, laying aside rod and sword, laying aside weapons, dwelling with tenderness and compassion quivering for the welfare of all beings. The practitioner enters in to the path. So something like that. This idea of laying aside the motivation of harm, of cruelty, 
and instead dedicating, aspiring that the heart be filled with non-hatred, care. So to recap, non-hatred is a very powerful expression of spiritual development in the Dharma and in many other spiritual paths as well. And many different experiences can arise without hatred. The total absence of hatred, greed, and delusion is synonymous with awakening. And each little taste we allow ourselves to be nourished by of these qualities is onward leading. Thank you for your attention. Oh, dear Sangha, we have a few minutes for questions, comments. And you're welcome to, we've got only one page of people, so you're welcome to wave your hand or just unmute. June, please. Thank you for the wonderful talk about non-hatred. So I have been struggling with insomnia recently, and I have mm. so much, so much fear and uh, frustration against my body not working as it used to do, as it used to work. So this helps. I think it's my practice to 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 be kind, to be patient to the body, and uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, June. Thank you very much. And there's something really powerful about what you're saying, being kind, non-contention, being part of the non-hatred towards the body and I imagine towards a mind that won't stop sometimes. Yes, yes. The mind, the mind can get so agitated and sometimes it creates very scary stories. Yeah, so I think the welcoming attitude, allowing attitude, yeah, I think allowing. <laughs> Maybe that's the best I can do, not welcoming. <laughs> yeah, when the stories get devolved from reality and into scary territory, I think not having contention and also um, noticing the safety in the moment this breath, this bed, this room can be really helpful to begin to give some space from whatever is whirling around. And um, that really kind of loving attitude towards the body and breathing can be helpful. Thank you for your observations. Thank you. I wanted to um, thank you, Dawn. It's my first time, everyone, here. I'm very grateful I found this group. Teachings um, and the stories really resonated with me, both um, of Sharon Salzberg in India, but also at the Aikido story um, of Terry. This morning, I was woken up 
by the phone ringing. My phone is never on um, ringer, but I had put it almost as if I knew I would have to answer it. And gentleman on the other side asked me if I recognized him. I said no. And um, he then was very forceful speaking to me like a headmistress speaks to a young child who deserves, in her opinion, to be scolded. And I said, I'm terribly sorry, I've just woken up. May I ring you back in 15 minutes? This exchange went on about four times from me where he would not let me go. In the end, I prevailed. I went back to sleep, woke up with my practice, called him back in 15 minutes that I'd said, and it was repeat again. At the end of the call, he was saying to me, well, I'm on your side. I'm your flag bearer. I just didn't know any of this. And Mm -hmm. they were telling me a one-sided story and I will get this fixed for you by today and then you will do your side of it. And... um, you're not using leverage, you're not using leverage. And I just let him speak, let him speak as long as he wanted to. And the voice remained forceful. And I resonated with the two stories because if I wasn't practicing, I couldn't have met him where he was at. I am using leverage. I'm not paying them until I get the service they've provided. (laughs) I have written in writing several times, all the issues are documented that he sold to me and the product hasn't been given. But I also recognize that if I wasn't practicing, I couldn't have had that same drunken man crying in the Aikido practitioner's turnaround. I really saw, ah, so that's how it subtly works. But I was left completely shaken throughout the day, like Sharon Salzberg, um, until I heard, well, hit him with an umbrella. And with all the meta in your heart. And so that's when I landed in equanimity. And I've stayed, you know, had that short period of equanimity completely open to experience. So it was very life for me. And so thank you, Dawn, for teaching in such a wonderful way to bring practice alive. Thank you very much, Priyanka. Am I pronouncing your name right? Okay. And what a powerful story. You just told, I mean, thank you for your practice, that you were able to meet that and not spin out completely in the moment. So um, um, to be gentle with yourself as the day winds down. Hmm. Any others? I have a question for you then, which is, I um, named a lot of other qualities that don't include hatred at the beginning of the Dharma talk. Only touched on a few of them in the talk. I'm wondering if any of those resonate for you or if others 
that you live into in your own life, moments of absence of hatred, aversion, dislike. There are moments that you can speak to. And it can just be naming a mind state or you can tell a story, it's up to you. I would oh sorry. First Joanne, then Jan. Sorry, I saw Joanne's hand first. I think for me the biggest one is <clears throat> especially when mindfulness returns and um I feel my body really tense is just relaxation mm. for me, that kind of um uh letting go of the tension and uh yeah, that's, I mean, I guess it's a combination of mindfulness, letting go. Um, but I really feel my shoulders drop. And, and for me, that's the moment when I'm not caught. Thank you, Joanne. Jan. And I think that's similar in a way. I really resonated with the words, um, the peace and the arising and falling away in each moment. Peace in the arising and falling away in each moment, regardless of what is arising and falling. So the, when, when there's awareness and this sense of nothingness or emptiness and space and the delusion kind of evaporating for a little while. Um, there's a tremendous amount of joy and peace. I'd say joyous and gratitude are the strongest feelings. Beautiful. Um, really, um, it's like a little mini transmission of these moments of the practice where that absence, that flow, that rising and passing can just open things up regardless of what the content is. Thank you. We have time for maybe one more if anyone feels inspired to speak, share. What about uh, non-harming? Is that part of the non-hatred? Uh, non-harming? Yeah. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yes. The intention not to harm is um, like this <laughs> with non-hatred. Okay. Yeah. And... Um, It's related. Um, I think there can be 
depends on what level of subtlety we're talking about. There can be active dislike or even um, something close to hatred and still a commitment to non-harming in physical or verbal action. However, the non-harming at the mental level is something more subtle, right? Non-harming towards others or ourselves on that level becomes more subtle. Um, so the Buddha talks about with hatred in particular, he uses the simile of if you see it arise in the mind, treat it like a grass fire that's starting, stomp it out immediately. Um, address it immediately. And that doesn't mean repress what's there, it means address what's there. Because if it's not seen at the mental level, it can spread. And the next thing you know, that, you know, we've all done it and been on the receiving end of vibing someone or being vibed. Like they're not actively harming us, but wow, we can tell they don't like us in that moment, right? So there's subtle gradations of how this can work. Um, and it's also possible, unfortunately, to do harm without intention of harm, without any hatred. The um, example given in the ancient teachings is of an arahant, a fully awakened monk who happened to be blind and was doing walking meditation on this one imagines very straight, simple path. And unbeknownst to the monk, he was treading on many insects and killing them. So he's doing harm, but there's absolutely no intention of harm there. So from um, the perspective of non-hatred is about intention, and it can be grown to a broader degree of non-harming if we have more knowledge, more capacity to see. I hope that makes some sense. It's, it's a profound question you brought up, June. Thank you. Wonderful answers. Thank you. And I want to honor Charles Lee. I see you and I want to hear from you. And those who need to leave, please do. And we'll continue the conversation for another few minutes. Charles Lee, please, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, sure. I might have missed uh, uh, the last uh, 10 minutes or so of discussion. Um, but what was just said about the, um, you know, the blind monk who was, uh, you know, uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, uh, killing um, bugs. Uh, I guess is there, you know, um, is there more to learn from this? In that, okay, if I am this blind monk, um, and my intention, because I mean, I think this this is, you know, in in modern day. Uh, uh, race class relations this is a big point of intent versus impact exactly. or intent and impact so once uh you know say i'm the blind monk and i now learn you know one of my uh, uh fellow monastics says hey venerable you are you know you know where you're walking uh you know you have killed you know uh, many many insects do i now have a responsibility to say hey can you, you know, tell me in the future or, you know, can we set up a walking path where, you know, where I'm not killing living things? 
Um, because I think, I think, you know, uh, uh, I've been guilty of, of, of sometimes saying, well, I didn't mean to cause harm, you know, even though harm was caused. And so that is absolves me of, you know, I can continue to behave the way I'm behaving because, you know, my intent is pure. Yeah. So thank you for unpacking that, Charlesy. That's exactly why I said it's important to begin to increase our capacity to see. Because once we know, once we learn, then the expansion of responsibility comes along with that. And so the intent versus impact shifts the moment we realize, the moment anyone, the blind monk, realizes that he's causing harm. He's going to have to shift his behavior so as to not cause harm. And the responsibility, especially in race and class relations, but also in any other relationships, environmental stewardship, for example, upstream and downstream effects, it, we have so much more capacity to learn in terms of breadth of our knowledge now than the Bronze Age did, that it actually it, it makes Buddhist practice have a much broader scope now. And to be able to learn the conditions that cause harm and how we play into them is a more systemic level of committing to non-harming. That you know, the Buddha did that in his own way back in ancient India by creating an alternative class structure within his monastic order. And some of us can be inspired by that too, right? He didn't speak of it, race relations or class relations specifically. However, he saw the impact and created something different in his own culture, his own surroundings that had different effects for people. So I hope that made some sense. I think your point is very well taken that um, ancient Buddhist teachings are about intention. However, specifically around non-harming or non-hatred. However, we also can utilize the ancient Buddhist teachings of conditionality. Are we playing into conditions that cause harm or that promote hatred, systems of oppression and hatred? Or are we acting as best we can to counteract those? Is that reasonable to you or is there more to to add about that oh oh yeah yeah i just uh uh you know i just always like bringing bring that up and then um you know the corollary is uh is is the buddhist uh uh teachings to his his son rahula regarding uh uh reflecting on on actions i you know if you uh, you know if i practice that um that that reflecting that checking you know uh, is what I'm about to do likely to cause harm? Is what I'm doing causing harm? Um, uh, it, did what I did cause harm? Um, you know, uh, I guess uh, dutifully. You know, hopefully not, not uh, you know, not to the point of, of absurdity, but um, but dutifully checking um, every once in a while that you know, even though this this action, you know, that I you know, that I've been doing for years and, you know, hasn't been causing harm, you know, we, you know, we live in samsara, you know, um, 
often, you know, there's a high chance that, you know, many of, you know, many of the things I do, you know, cause harm. And so to reflect on, you know, to, you know, to, to, to reasonably reflect on, on my actions before, during, and after, um, I think will, you know, you know, can help with the uh, intent and impact uh, issues. Absolutely. And one of my favorite things about that teaching um, is that he gave it to his son when his son was seven years old. So this is something that anyone can learn to do. Anyone. Like like all these teams, like many of these teachings, simple, but not easy. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, Charles Lee, very much. So friends, we have reached the end of our time. I just want to take a moment to dedicate the merit. Thank you, each of you who spoke, for bringing in your perspective, your wisdom, your experiences. Thank you to those of you who stayed silent for your presence and your practice, all of you. And may our practice here together be a condition, a cause for the growth of non-hatred, non-harming, non-greed and non-delusion in the world, in our own hearts, minds, words, and actions. And may those intentions and actions ripple through our lives to all of those we touch and all of those they touch, outwards and outwards. May all beings everywhere be free of suffering. Thank you all for the sincerity of your practice. Be well. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Don. Thanks, all. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Be well, everyone. Bye, everyone.